Welcome back to the program. It's often said that to name something is to understand it. If that's true, then my guest Scott Stossel has a greater understanding of anxiety than anyone else. In his book, Just Out in Paperback, My Age of Anxiety, he takes us through the litany of his multiple anxieties and treatments. In so doing, we come away with a far greater understanding of and sympathy for the anxieties that for Scott and so many others, far more than we know, plague everyday life. In a more connected, complex, speeded-up world, are these individuals' anxieties made worse? And do they, in fact, create a kind of feedback loop into our collective societal anxiety? A society in which we have the unique ability to turn even good news into something to worry about. Scott Stossel is the editor of The Atlantic Magazine and the author of Sarge, The Life and Times of Sergeant Shriver. His articles and essays have appeared in numerous publications, and it is my pleasure to welcome Scott Stossel here to talk about my age of anxiety, fear, hope, dread, and the search for peace of mind. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you here. As you started to research this and really look at it for the context of this book, were you surprised at how many people suffer from some kind of anxiety that in many cases they keep a, a deep, dark secret? Yes. I mean, I had some sense, uh, you know, having struggled with anxiety myself, that this was something that some percentage of the human population suffered from. And I uh, knew that there was probably, you know, some portion of the population that suffered from it. But the statistics are quite uh, striking that, you know, some 40 million, just to speak of Americans, some 40 million Americans will be suffering from an anxiety disorder at any given time. And that over the course of our lifetimes, um, somewhere between one in four and one in six of us will at some point be, be clinically characterizable as having an anxiety disorder. And partly that's because I think that you know, a certain amount of anxiety is it's, it's part of the human condition. It's actually a normal adaptive trait. But clinical kind of debilitating pathological anxiety is something that is also sort of woven into the human condition. And um, everybody, if subjected to enough stress, uh, or almost everyone except for sociopaths and extremely resilient people, will break down and succumb to an anxiety disorder if, if, if they're exposed to enough stress. And then there are certain of us, like myself, who uh, are just, for many reasons, but probably largely genetic, uh, their constellation of genes make them more susceptible to being hyper-reactive to stress or to overreact to stresses that aren't really there. And um, those of us are more uh, likely to come down with uh, an anxiety disorder. And are we seeing more of it today as we see more and more societal stresses that are on individuals as life moves faster, do, do we see more of this anxiety playing itself out today? Uh, the short answer is yes. I mean, I came across a striking study that showed um, that the, uh, the, 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 the typical um, high, the high school student today um, has the average level of anxiety that the typical inpatient psychiatric uh, patient would have had in the 1950s, which suggests, you know, that there's been a pretty large quantum increase in um, the amount of anxiety uh, over the last several generations. Um, and one of the most fascinating things about my research, so I look back through history, you know, each successive generation, whether we're talking about now or um, the post-war atomic age or the Gilded Age or the early Industrial Revolution or the Renaissance or the Enlightenment or even 4th century uh, ancient Greece, B.C., um, they all fly, believe themselves to be the most anxious society ever. So, as I say, to, 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 
certain degree to suggest that anxiety is just woven into the human condition. But what holds all those errors I just mentioned in common, or what ties them all together, is that there are certain um, traits and um, structures to a society and a culture that do tend to be more anxiety-producing, and, th- and those are all uh, eminently prevalent in, in today's society, and those are things like uns- uncertainty. Obviously, the economy is recovering now, but since 2008, it's been a very um, shaky economy. Um, the, the, the pace of technological change has been huge, um, and in some ways, even things that we that are on balance are, are, are good things, like the increase, you know, in the United States over the last 200 years in political freedom and freedom of choice and economic material well-being. These are all net goods, but they also increase choice. And there's a sociologist at uh, Swarthmore College who talks about the paradox of choice and that every time, you know, nowadays when you walk into, uh, say, a supermarket and you're faced with the choice of 57 breakfast cereals, that's actually mildly stressful having to decide which one. And that's a trivial example, but you know, whereas in the Middle Ages, our lives were probably materially worse. You were um, going to die in uh, a young age and suffer from all kinds of horrible diseases for which we now have medical treatment. But at least you didn't have um, the, even the opportunity for neurotic anxiety because you were born into the role you were going to inhabit and didn't have to make decisions about, do I want to be a stay-at-home mom or do I want to work? Do I want to go to law school or medical school? You know, what uh, personal style or role do I want to choose? So in some ways, this... Uh, proliferation of choice is actually added to our anxieties. And then, of course, there's the media, which um, you know, we now know about every horrible thing happening all over the world, and that tends to uh, augment our anxieties. Right. I mean, there was a bumper sticker I remember years ago that, that somebody had that said, if you're not anxious, you're not paying attention. I mean, there is that sense in society today. Well, absolutely. And, 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 and actually, that bumper sticker has, with obviously, sort of a joke, but it's, it's, it's true that actually anxiety or, you know, is, is really a derivation of, of fear or, or the fight-or-flight response, which is an evolutionarily adaptive mechanism that's designed to keep us alive so that when you're in real danger, you know, if you're being chased by a tiger, attacked by an enemy tribe or something in the state of nature, you know, blood runs from your uh, digestive system, which makes you feel sick, to the larger muscles in your arms and legs, so you're prepared to fight or to flee. And as I say, in those situations, that's actually adaptive. What's not adaptive, and in people who uh, succumb to anxiety disorders, is that that response kind of happens randomly or in response to triggers that are not actually uh, objectively dangerous, and yet you're still subjected to the same overwhelming panoply of physiological and physical responses, the sweating, the dizziness, the nausea, the gastric distress, the feeling of unreality, and these terrible feelings of dread, which is a truly awful feeling. And yet one of the things you talk about is that people that, like yourself, people that are particularly anxious and hyper-aware of it, that when faced with a situation of real dread and real life-or-death danger are often distracted from all of their other anxieties and are able to focus in, in a more unique way on the particular danger of the moment. Yeah, there de- there's definitely something to that. I mean, anxiety to some degree is a certain uh, nar- narcissistic disorder in that um, we're all, people with anxiety disorder are fixated on themselves. What does this bodily sensation mean? What are people thinking of me? Oh my God, am I going to screw up? Have I, have, I, have I made some kind of mistake? And in some ways, real external uh, objective danger 
um, allows them to focus outside of themselves. And there are these famous studies that I, or these fascinating studies that I came across in my research about um, the Blitz of London during World War II. And actually, the, you know, the rates of, uh, for, for people who were diagnosed with anxiety or neurosis and were in therapy actually found their overall level of anxiety reduced. Because for the one thing, they no longer felt embarrassed about having to hide their feelings of anxiety because everyone was afraid that a V2 rocket was going to fall on their head and they had something real to, to focus on. Now, that said, it's also true that, um, you know, real stress, uh, if you pile enough of it up, will, you know, subject some people to developing, you know, what's known as post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a subspecies of anxiety disorder. Um, but in my own case, I do find that sometimes um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm better at dealing with real danger and stressful situations than I am with the kind of neurotic uh, imaginings of my own mind. The other part of this, and you talk about this a lot, this fear of being exposed for having all of these anxieties adds another layer of anxiety on top of everything else. Right. That's, that's definitely true. And, and uh, you know, so I'm 45 years old now and I was officially first diagnosed uh, with anxiety disorders when I, my parents took me to a psychiatric hospital when I was 10, which is 35 years ago. And I'd obviously been wrestling with these issues for a few years before that. And until I published the book in uh, hardcover uh, about a year ago, you know, I'd spent 35 plus years assiduously trying to hide the, 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 my anxiety. And that was everything from kind of making up excuses for why I was disappearing to go to therapy appointments and keeping my medications hidden. And, you know, a therapist, uh, the character I called Dr. W in my book, talked about uh, what he calls impression management. And that's exactly what I was doing, which was that one um, common trait among people with certain kinds of anxiety disorder, particularly pa panic disorder, you know, have this uh, urgent need to feel they need to hide the anxiety and to hide the feelings of sort of vulnerability and weakness that they feel within. And they're actually, like I was, pretty good at it. But the problem is, as Dr. W suggested, that this is not only a symptom of the disorder, um, because it's you know, part and parcel of being afraid of being seen as weak and just feeling badly about yourself, but it's also a contributor to it. And then it takes a lot of effort to worry about you know, whether this house of cards edifice that is your externally presented self to the world, which may appear competent and confident, but you feel like is masking this inner um, truer self that's full of vulnerability and anxiety and just kind of a mess. It takes a lot of work and energy, and that's tiring and makes you sicker. What is our current research about brain development and particularly the chemistry of the brain? What is that revealed about the nature and functioning of anxiety? Uh, well, the, the the research that and I, I, I dive into this in some detail in my book is is completely fascinating, and they're learning a, a, a lot in a, in a variety of different areas. I mean, one area is sort of the genetics of of anxiety, and you know, my, my suspicion going into the book based on my own family history, you know, I had a great grandfather who was hospitalized many times for anxiety. To, and was subjected to multiple electroshock therapies. On the mo my mother's side of the family, we have a whole bunch of us who have varying degrees of, of, of anxiety. So I had a kind of a hunch that anxiety was highly genetic. But there are now, every year, you know, dozens if not hundreds of studies come out looking at different genes or constellation of genes and certain variations um, that make people either more or less susceptible to anxiety. And it's, and it's totally fascinating that there are certain gene variants that make you, you know, extremely likely to have a kind of hyper-anxious response to stressful life events. And there are other variants of, of, of these genes that make one almost immune to it to the point where you're you know, completely resistant to post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, other research is focusing on 
uh, sort of the neuro, the, the 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 brain systems and neurotransmitter systems that lead to different um, anxious states of mind. And so, for instance, in the brain, they now know that uh, the amygdala, which is kind of in the at the at the root of the brain, is part of the a reptilian part of our brain is very, very much the seat of fear. You know, it gets hyperactivated when you're fearful or having negative emotions, and then that relates to other things like the basal ganglia um, and uh, you know other other parts of the brain. And then looking at different serotonin, um, norepinephrine, dopamine. You, these are all um, neurotransmitters that, if you have kind of a, a, a dysregulation in, in, in the levels of those, that can lead one to have uh, an anxiety disorder. And so all of this is actually, one hopes, you'll, uh, will, will yield you know, more hopeful and, and, and more precisely targeted drug tech, uh, uh, treatments that can help reduce anxiety in severely anxious people. And yet in your own situation, you've tried many, many drugs along the way, and none of them have really been the magic bullet in terms of dealing with your own anxiety. Yes, that is true. I mean, I, I list in the book the long litany uh, of drug treatments that I've tried uh, over many years, and none of which have certainly cured me. And it was, you know, it's funny. After publishing the book, a lot of people wrote to me saying, "Oh, I can totally relate." But that's only half the drugs I've tried. So, um, it, it, you know, you, you, drugs are not at this point a cure for anxiety. Um, and I have kind of mixed feelings about them. As I said, you know, I list all these drugs that either you know that didn't work, or worked for a short period of time and then stopped, or worked but had side effects or dependency um, problems. Um, you know, but that said, I'm, I'm not anti-pharmaceutical in that you know, for people who are in severe distress, um, if you can find the right medication, it can often be the difference between, you know, being housebound and completely non-functional and unable to hold a job or have normal human relationships and the ability to sort of exist in the world. And um, for me, benzodiazepines, which is the class of drugs that includes um, Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan, things like that, have you know, if if I take enough of them, most of the time that will reduce my anxiety. But of course, they, that also makes me incredibly sleepy. And the more frequently you rely on it, the more you know, you need a higher and higher dose. And there's uncertain evidence about whether this, if you take too many of them to, over too long a time, there was a study that came out late last year about this might contribute to uh, early dementia and Alzheimer's. So it's it's a um, you know, in the ideal world, uh, I always recommend to people that if they can deal with their anxiety and treat it without medication, you're better off just because then you're not dependent on an outside crutch and are not having to deal with these complex and still somewhat unknown side effects. That said, drugs really do work for some people and in some cases it can be a lifeline and, and, and literally um, kind of the, the, the difference between life and death. And on the other side of the equation, you've also tried many different kinds of traditional therapy along the way, trying to find the perfect answer. That's right. Um, and again, I list all the, you know, m many of the things I've tried from traditional psychotherapy to group therapy to what's known as cognitive behavioral therapy to hypnotism to uh, EMDR, which is, I'm forgetting what it stands for, but it's like you move your eyes back and forth um, to try to reconnect the halves of your brain and overcome trauma to energy systems therapy. And again, it's true that none of them have cured me. I mean, I'm still, here I am 35 years on, and I, I suffer from anxiety. But there are certain things that, based on my own experience and based on my reading um, deeply in the, in the research literature, are clearly more effective than others, you know, on average. And one of them is cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. And basically that is a form of old-fashioned kind of, you know, talk therapy, going in and talking to a therapist. But it's much more focused and targeted on a combination of exposing yourself to the thing that you... Uh, are most anxious, whether that's 
public speaking or flying or fear of heights or social interactions and you know going through the thing that scares you the most again and again and again until the fear um, diminishes and then learning to retrain your thought process so you don't um, think of it as immediately terrifying and I call it you know reframing your cognitions so there's a lot of evidence that CBT works as well as drugs, uh, but without the side effects and other problems for everything from anxiety and depression to even things like schizophrenia. Um, another area of really promising research, and this is something that I have tried, but I'm really bad at, the irony is that the people who could most benefit from what they call mindfulness med- mindfulness meditation are probably the people who have the hardest time sitting still and, and doing it. But there's all kinds of compelling evidence that if you can train yourself to meditate and do sort of deep breathing exercises, after a very short period of time, um, your sense of well-being increases, your levels of anxiety decrease, and there literally are structural changes in your brain that they can see um, in a functional magnetic uh, resonance uh, imaging machine where the density of connections in your amygdala, which is, as I was saying earlier, is the seat of fear, it actually shrinks, and the density of connections in your frontal cortex, which is sort of the seat of rationality in your brain, increase, which enables you to kind of overall, override with your rational brain um, the scary thoughts being sent out by your amygdala. As I say, I, I, I know for, you know, um, intellectually that that's incredibly effective and I highly recommend it. I've not been able to make it work um, entirely satisfactorily for myself. Talk about that disconnect between the intellectual knowledge of anxiety and understanding where it's coming from and why, and yet still being emotionally caught up in it, and the anxiety that's produced simply by that disconnect. Right. I mean, it's, it's, people ask me if, you know, whether writing and publishing the book was helpful to me, um, in reducing my own anxiety. And to a certain degree, it certainly was, in part precisely because of that, because I developed a much more thorough, scientific, rational understanding of what it is that produces the anxiety. You know, if I, you know, I can sit, there are times when I can sit back, if I'm not feeling anxious, I can sit back and, you know, write in my book or talk to you about how, um, you know, I know exactly what the, physiological series of events uh, and neurotransmitters in my brain that are, you know, combining to produce anxious thoughts. And I know that many of the things that I fear are irrational or that my fear is disproportionate to the, the fear trigger. Um, and again, in, the, in moments of calm, it's very easy for me to sit there and say that. And I kind of even know that in the rational part of my brain when I'm in the throes of terrible anxiety. And that there's something about once the anxiety overtakes you and it kind of hijacks your brain and your body and you're having sweating and dizziness and feelings of unreality and nausea and shaking and you, uh, your heart is, is, is beating wildly and this is accompanied by your brain gets hijacked into sort of feelings of dread and imminent death and collapse. And in that moment, even though I'm, and I've gotten, you know, there are times when I can use my rational brain and what I know about the mechanics of anxiety to talk myself down from that point and say, you know, this is just anxiety, relax, let it wash over you, it will pass. And yet there are still, even after all this research and all these years, times when I just succumb. And even though, again, I still know in the rational part of my brain that I'm not in any real danger, the horrible feelings of dread and kind of physiological breakdown just overtake me. And that's, that's a kind of miserable thing. How important is routine and organization in dealing with anxiety? And in that sense, how is it related to things like OCD? Uh, well, OCD for 30 years was officially 
classified as a subspecies of anxiety disorder. And co- controversially, um, in the most recent version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is kind of the Bible of the American Psychiatric Association, which has all the diagnoses for psych- psychiatric disorders, it was actually removed from the anxiety disorders and moved into impulsive disorders like Tourette's. And um, I think that was probably the wrong decision. And a lot of experts I talked to were very upset about that because um, OCD has a lot of anxiety uh, associated with it. You know, most people have um, OCD, you know, they get incredibly anxious. They're not able to act out their compulsions, whether that's hand washing or checking things. Um, so, yes, I mean, it's, it's sort of common sense that any kind of, you know, having order and um, reducing um, uncertainty and clutter in your life, um, and this goes for people who are both clinically anxious and those who are not, will make you um, healthier and less anxious. But in some ways, some of the things that, you know, your grandmother or your mother or folk wisdom would tell you um, are true and very good advice, which is to say, you know, get a, a regular good amount of sleep. Um, there's all kinds of research suggesting that when you get sleep deprived, particularly if you're prone to anxiety, you know, it changes uh, the, the, the sort of neurotransmitter systems in your brain and you'll get more and more anxious, which makes you more insomniac, which makes it hard to sleep, which can be this terrible, vicious cycle for anxious people. Um, get regular exercise. Again, this is what your doctor and your you know, grandmother probably told you, but it's really, really true. You know, I, I can speak from my own experience that you know, I just feel better and less prone to anxiety when I'm regularly exercising, but there's studies from leading research institutes like uh, you know, at Duke that suggest that you know, regular exercise is effective at cutting down on panic attack and generalized anxiety disorder as a lot of medications are. So building those kinds of routines into your life and taking care of yourself really do make a big difference and are quite practical um, guards against anxiety. And finally, do you think that there is this feedback loop that goes on that we have so many anxious individuals and in many ways it creates a more anxious society, which in turn creates more anxious individuals? I I think that could be the case. I mean, uh, the way that individual psychology and culture um, interact uh, is, is interesting. And, um, you know, in this day and age when, you know, the economy, even though it's improving, is still so much based on, you know, there's no longer um, the kind of corporate loyalty that you had from companies where you could assume to, to, to you, you would work for the same company for years and years without fear of being laid off. And you've got, uh, you know, more and more people being diagnosed with anxiety disorders and depression and taking medication. And, you know, there's evidence that, um, you know, uncertainty is one of the worst things for people who suffer from anxiety. We have a lot of uncertainty and this uncertainty can actually rewire your brain to make you even more anxious. So it could be theoretically that we've entered this kind of feedback loop where, you know, the very stressful and anxiety producing nature of our society is making us more anxious as individuals, which in turn makes the society more anxious. And um, that's not a um, virtuous cycle that we want to be in. Scott Stossel, his book is my age of anxiety. Fear, Hope, Dread, and the Search for Peace of Mind. It's just out in paperback. Scott, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, Well, thanks so much for having me.